Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services. We hope you enjoy. Amen, amen. Would you guys give it up for our worship team? You. You may be seated. All right, all right. Well, hey, uh, welcome young adults, our little Bible study we got going on. If you have a Bible... What book of the Bible are we in right now? Romans. Romans. Yeah, we are. Go to Romans chapter 10 with me. And uh, as you go there, if you're new, my name is Matt. And uh, don't really, like, I'm not really doing a sermon tonight. Like, uh, I'm just presenting some exegetical teaching. You guys in your groups are going to take that and go with it. And so if you're new to young adults and you're like, why are we in chairs and couches and things like that? That's because I speak for, I normally speak for like an hour. But I'm only going to speak for like, I only got six pages of notes, so we'll see how long. I normally have eight or ten. Um... You guys are going to break up into groups and uh, go through your questions. If you have any questions of anything I talked about today, um, feel free just to text in uh, that number on your top right of your piece of paper. All right, so before we hop into where we're headed today, which, by the way, like I said, is Romans chapter 10, we're in week like 780 or something. I don't even know. Does anyone know what week this technically is? It's like 25 or something? We've done like, we're, uh, by the way, there's 400. What is it? 24. What do my notes say? Dang, my notes say 23. All right, um... Uh, there's 430 verses all throughout the book of Romans, um, 16 chapters. Uh, really, there's, there's five themes. Um, we're going through all of it, right? Verse by verse, word by word, studying it all. Now, before we hop into chapter 10 today, a uh, question for you to discuss for about, I don't know, 30 seconds or so. This question here. What is something you have used incorrectly before? All right? What's something you've used incorrectly before? You guys got like 30 seconds to a minute, turn, discuss. Ready, say, Go. Oh, I got a handful. I came across this article. Um, I once caught a friend of mine rubbing antibacterial hand wipes from KFC all over his fried chicken. The little packet said a hint of lemon, and he thought it meant to flavor the chicken with. And then it says dot, 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 idiot. Um, I used to live two doors down from a neighbor who would often vacuum her grass after it was mowed. Um, this one's pretty funny. My wife once watched a girl at her work stick a ball of aluminum into her microwave with instant ramen. When asked why, she said, oh, the sparks are just because it heats it up faster, as it were common knowledge. Like, what the? And then my favorite one, I once had a friend casually say, you know how when you just run out of toilet paper and so you just use a sock or whatever? No the heck, I do not, Sandra. I think that's pretty funny. Uh, I'll give you mine. All right, so uh, growing up, and you've been here for a while, you probably heard it, um, my dad was making tacos one night, and... Um, we're eating tacos. We're getting done with like dinner. I'm like 15 tacos deep. You know, I'm throwing them down like Tic Tacs, and uh, it comes it comes to the end of uh, of dinner, and uh, my mom is in the kitchen just like making this gagging noise. And I run in the kitchen, and she goes, "My dad's name is Mark. Mark, were you using this in her hand?" She's holding something that my dad was using to grate all of the cheese. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a pet egg. You guys know what a pet egg is? It's used to grate your foot, like cheese. It's like old, old ladies, like, you know, have like callus. I don't know. I don't know if men, I don't know. But, you know, and so my, my dad thought like, oh, she bought me a new cheese grater. Nah, bro, it was a foot grater. All right. Um, so here's the thing, right? I think the truth is, uh, from that connection to this one, it's possible uh, to misuse a good thing, right? It's just possible in our daily life to misuse things that have a very expressed and specific purpose, right? Now, our text today demonstrates that it's also certainly possible to misuse the things 
of God. In our case, and just to recap, we're talking about the Jews, right? So in Romans 9, Romans 10, we're talking about Jews. They were misusing the Old Testament law for a purpose that it was never intended for. Track with me here. I know we've been through 24 weeks already, but and if you're new, I'm going to try my best to bring you up. God gave the law for a few purposes. The Jews used it for another. The law was never, never, ever, ever given as a means to remove sin. This is important you understand this. The law, by the way, there's 625 laws in the Old Testament. Jewish people got a lot of laws to follow. It's not my notes, but I'll give it to you anyways. There's three types of laws in the Old Testament. Um, uh, so if you are a, a Christian and um, you believe in natural marriage, like um, I think the Bible reinforces, um, I don't think I know, but uh, you'll hear people say like, well, like I know there's Old Testament passages in like Leviticus 19, 18, 21, all that um, to talk about marriage. And, you know, like we as Christians today can have like wear, wear things with interwoven fabric or we can, we don't have to have our hair like, you know, in this like, goofy, you know, curl or we don't have to wear a yarmulke or we can have shellfish, right? So if there are laws in the Old Testament we don't listen to anymore, then what's, what's the laws about like marriage? Why can't we, why do we have to hold on to these and not those? There are three types of laws in the Old Testament for those of you guys taking notes and they care to know. Number one's called civic laws. These are centered around the place of Israel. Do we live in Israel? Are you Jewish? No, therefore, we don't have to follow the civic laws in the Old Testament. Number two, ceremonial laws. Is anyone in here a priest of the Jewish faith? That'd be weird. <laughs> you raised your hand, you're a liar. Um, uh, so yeah, so uh, there, there are ceremonial ones, very specific for the priests in Israel, in the temple, to do very specific procedures. And then finally, there are moral laws, things that anchor themselves in God's character. If God is immutable, meaning unchanging, therefore those laws are unchanging regardless of place, location, time, X, Y, or Z, all right? So God gave the law for an expressed purpose. They thought that they could follow the law, do a bunch of good things, and remove the sin in their lives. In other words, if I help grandma across the street and I've done this one good thing, it blots out that I watched pornography just before church. Are you tracking with me? They thought that because they could do some good things, they could bring them up closer to God as long as the good outweighed the bad. Now, modern day, Americans probably believe this too. Well, I mean, I'm not as bad as like Hitler or my ex or whatever, right? So they, they put some person in this category that's really, really bad, right? And they go, well, at least I'm not as bad as, what if you were to say, at least I'm not as, and then you tried to throw Jesus in there. You're like, Mm, he's perfect. Uh, what if the person that you're supposed to use the mirror to see how you're doing is Jesus, is perfection? How are you doing now? Not good, right? I use this analogy a lot, right? It's like, uh, uh, ladies, you probably have one of those makeup mirrors, right? And it like just sees into your thoughts and deepest, darkest, whatever, right? That's what the Bible's supposed to be like, a mirror, like a makeup mirror that just shows all the imperfections of who you are. The Bible, or God's law, was never meant to remove sin. It was meant to reveal sin, that's important. It was meant to reveal sin like an x-ray machine. Now, does an x-ray machine fix anything? You ever gone to like the chiropractor and uh, they did the x-ray machine? It was like, it, while they were taking the x-ray, it was like, <laughs> no, that's not how it works, right? The x-ray machine just reveals that something needs to be uh, fixed. And then you, now in light of this knowledge, surrender yourself to the chiropractor so the chiropractor can make some adjustments. That's kind of how the, the law of the Old Testament was was designed to work. Show you there's a problem, surrender to the Savior, he can fix the problem. Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding, right? But that, I could end it there, right? And so the law has a handful of purposes, but Jews used it for something it was never designed, and that was to simply call to attain righteousness. If you've been here with us for a handful of weeks now, you know that the whole theme of the book of Romans is what? The righteousness of God. What does that word mean? It means to have a right relationship with God, most importantly, and others. By the way, fun fact, in the book of Exodus chapter 20, there's 10 commandments. 
The first five of those commandments are all about your vertical relationship with God, so the next five are about your horizontal relationship with other image bearers or the created world around you, right? If you can have a right relationship with God, it will adversely help you have right relationships with other people. That's how this works, right? And so they, they viewed the law, and they used the law to try to obtain righteousness. Like I said, that is the theme of the book of Romans, how you and I, broken and sinful and folly people, can be made right with a perfect, awesome, and just and great God. That's why the book of Romans is probably one of my favorite books of the Bible, um, and it teaches us something foundationally important. Now, um, a few things. I'm going to tell you two things the law is for really quick. Um, Number one, the law reveals what God is like and what God is for. The law, whether that be in the Old Testament or the New, um, reveals what God is like and what God is for. This is important. Let me give you an example here. As a father, I'm going to have certain laws for my family and specifically probably for my daughter. Now, these laws that I set will not be to restrict the joy of my daughter, but rather to safeguard her joy. And the truth is you can actually learn something about the father, me in this example, by the laws that I set for my family. It is important that you understand that God the Father is for your joy. And so when he says, look, don't get drunk, don't get high, don't have sex before you're married, don't get addicted to X, Y, or Z, it's not because he's a killjoy. It's because from his perspective and from what he knows, he knows that if you start entering into certain friend groups, start dating certain people, you start um, uh, uh, getting addicted to substances or start having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever, he knows that these things don't lead to the freedom that he wants for you. And so he's not a killjoy. God first and probably most, he is for your joy. And it's important you understand that. Number two, like I said earlier, this, the, the law reveals our sinful condition. It can never remove our sinful condition. That's super important. And it's going to be a theme for what we're going to talk about in a second. Now, we're left with a question. If the law reveals our condition, doesn't remove our condition, then a good a question for you and I is, well, then how can a sinner like you and me, how can we be made right with God? Throughout human history, at least, the, yeah, throughout all of human history, there's really been two ways in which we've attempted to answer this. The first is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness acknowledges that there is a problem between us and God, but we, us in this room, we can fix it, right? So a few, few ways that this manifests its way out. Number one, religion. Religion tells you what to do so you can work to be right with God. That's important, right? Religion says this is what you must do. This is how you can work to be right with God. Now, I'll give you a few. Buddhism says you can save yourself by ceasing all desire. Islam says that you can save yourself by living a good life according to the Quran. Judaism says that you can save yourself by following the 625 laws of the Old Testament. A new agent says you are God, right? And that you don't need to be saved. You just need to be liberated from non-life-giving vibes, um, patterns of thinking that are toxic, and uh, bad vibes, whatever, right? And then you have, uh, let's go with another one, uh, Scientology. All right, if you guys know what Scientology teaches, it's buck wild, all right? Um, Scientology teaches that uh, you have thousands of spiritual beings that exist inside you. If you've ever heard of deja vu, they think it's because like, anyways. So um, you have thousands of these things called thetas, these spiritual beings that exist inside you. And only through the process of something called Dianetics, um, as you sit with a counselor and use this machine, it extracts these souls out of you. Freaking wild. Um, And you can go, it's called becoming clear. It means that you no longer have these thousands of thetas inside you. That's what Scientology uh, teaches. So religion, right? It tells you what you can do to be right with one or right with God, but then you have another thing called social causes. So I can, I can now be right with God. What's the next thing I can do to be right with people? And the next thing you can do to be right with people is social causes. It tells you what you can do to be right with people and culture. Now listen to closely to what I'm about to say. 
I am not saying social causes are bad. In fact, it was Christians who liberated and freed the slaves. The problem here is most social causes attempt to make the world just without the just one. And all that really leads to is more injustice and a real lack of human flourishing. I'll give you an example of this. The irony of PETA. I could go into my backyard and kill my dog, and that would be a tragedy in which I should be in prison for forever under the under way that PETA um, views this. But simultaneously, I could advocate or pay for the killing of an unborn child in a mother's womb and be esteemed in their eyes. Their compass is completely skewed, and their idea of what is right and just is wrong if their compass is not being directed towards the real just one. And so there are people, church-going people, who take a cause or an issue, a political party, more seriously than the cause of Christ. And this is a problem. Because Paul knows you can do something that is right, but still be in a wrong standing with God if you don't have Jesus in your life. In other words, you could work your entire life, every waking hour of your life, to do something that's good. Save the penguins. Whatever it is, right? And if you are not in a right relationship with God, it, all, it doesn't matter. Why? Because the way that the Bible describes and looks at all of human history is saved and not saved, or in our different categories, perfection and imperfect. The second you mess up, you are taken out of this category. It's actually worse than that. It says you're born imperfect. Um, in the book of Psalms, David says, for I was conceived in sin. Before my first utterance, before my first word, before my first thought, I was already fallen and separate from God. But for the sake of this argument, imagine that there was somebody on this planet that never did something bad. But the first time they do something bad, which they do, they are moved out of the category of perfection and placed in imperfection. What does the law demand? Absolute perfection. And if you haven't been perfect always in thought, action, or deed, then that's bad news. You were brought onto this side and not that side. And so... You can't be right with God because you're imperfect. And I think we could all at some level agree, I'm not perfect, right? So self-righteousness, this is how most people think they're going to get to God. At least I'm not as bad as, and they insert somebody. And I can do enough good to get to God. And I've given you this illustration before, but I'll give it to you again because um, there's some new people here. Imagine that you wake up one day and uh, someone is in your house and you hear their pots and pans and you know that your family or your friends or your parents, that no one's at your house. And so you, you go out into the kitchen and you see that there's a stranger in your house making an omelet. And you're freaking out. You're like, who, who are you? And they keep saying, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And you're like, get out of my house. Like, be, your goodness has no, doesn't give you any permission to be in my house. So they leave, but the next day, the same thing happens. You think he's back. You run out, and it's a different person. It's your best friend. It's uh, um, a cousin or some, uh, a grandparent that you're close to. You'd be perplexed that somehow they, like, got into your house, but you would treat them very differently. What's the difference? One, you have a relationship with, and one, you don't. Your goodness isn't a factor if you get into heaven. It's do you have a relationship with the homeowner? Your goodness doesn't matter. Am I in relationship with the one who owns the place? Heaven is God's home. Why would you think your goodness would be a factor? By the, by the way, the Bible says, no, not one is good anyways. Romans 3.23, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 talks about for the wages of sin are death, eternal separation from that that is good, the very source and sustainer of good, of love, of life. Self-righteousness. This is why most people will be doomed. For wide is the gate that leads to destruction, narrow is the one that leads to life. Because they think their goodness can get them into God's home. But then you have another one. And we've been learning about this. And if you go way back on our podcast and listen to, I think, 10 or 15 weeks ago, we get to some sections in Scripture, Romans 3, 4, and 5, that talk about this thing called imputed righteousness. The word imputed simply means uh, given to, transferred from, and counted as. Simply put, imputed righteousness believes and understands that I'm the problem, not the solution in my equation. That there is a problem between us and God, but we can't fix it. And that places us in a precarious and a bad situation. That something needs to be done for me to be right with God, and I'm not the one who can do it. 
I don't know how to swim in this pool. I, I don't know how to make my way back to God. Only Jesus and only Jesus can make you right with God. And so you ask a question, well, why? That's because Scripture could not be clearer on this reality and point, that you and I have no righteousness of our own, that we are sinners by nature and we cannot place ourselves in right standing with God. So one of the good news, the things we've been learning about for a while is that we need Christ standing, his righteousness credited to us so we can stand before God and be declared blameless. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the beauty of the gospel, that God had not surrendered his just demands, and Jesus acted as our willing substitute and paid the demands on our behalf. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. What this means is simply this, that we have all that God's righteousness requires of us in Jesus Christ. In other words, you are saved by Jesus' work upon the cross and not your own because your work is not enough. You're going to get to God with all of your good deeds. You want to something vulgar that the Bible says about your good deeds in mind? It says that your good deeds, and this is literally what it says in the Greek, are used menstrual rags to God. I think the best thing you ever did. I don't know, you baked cookies for the neighbor. Whatever the best thing you ever did was, right? You brought an apple to your teacher. And you're like, brought, and, and it's like, it's a tampon to God. That, literally, that, that's the image, right? That's crazy. You offer God nothing, and yet he loves you and I. It's like the whole gospel is perplexing. But anyways, so this idea of saved, we're going to kind of spend some time tonight talking about this one idea that we are saved by Jesus' work and not our own. So with that in the back of your mind, I want you to go with me to the book of Romans chapter 10. All of that, we haven't even gone to gone to Romans yet. Um, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 is where we're camping out today. I was going to do 13 verses, but I realized we'll be here for till next Sunday, and so I don't want to do that to you guys. And so um, a few things. Um, I want to remind you guys that he's specifically talking to the Jews, all right? And so that's important for the context. Follow me. It says this. And if, yeah, there it is up there. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them is that they may, I want you to highlight, be saved. Be saved. Saved is kind of a loaded word. What is it? What, you know, like, like, has a lot of connotations. In studying for this, I was listening to another pastor. His name's Ray Steadman, and some of our material tonight comes from him. He shares a story. One day, he was at a movie theater, and uh, the seat next to him was vacant. And a guy comes over, and he looked eager. He asked, hey, is that seat saved? And for some reason, the pastor, Ray Steadman, turned over him and said, no, but I am. And the guy went and like rolled his eyes and was like, I'm not sitting next to that weirdo, and then sat down next to, and sat down somewhere completely different, right? And he's like, <coughs> he's like, well, that was weird. I shouldn't have done that, huh? Like, I feel like, you know, I feel like that was weird. I think it's a, it's a funny story, though, because the word saved has almost kind of become this like, cringy word, right? You think of some extremist who holds some sign at Huntington Beach that says, turn or burn, Jesus saves, right? Or some like, old dude like, are you saved, brother? You know, like, and it has this kind of this, like, this cringiness now, this negative connotation, right? And that when you turn to the scriptures, you find that this is an absolutely unavoidable word. The reason followers of Jesus talk about being saved and not saved is because there's an unavoidable reality for all people. Listen closely. The reality that the Bible teaches so clearly is that the human race into which we are all born into is an already a lost race. In other words, you are not born saved. You were born lost. Something supernatural needs to take place for you and I to become saved. And this is why, by the way, the gospel is good news. By the way, the word gospel, gospel started from the old English God spell, and it meant good story. Why is the gospel a good story? That's because that you are born destined for hell, but because of Jesus and only because of Jesus, you can get heaven. 
See, the truth is we can never deal realistically with life until we face up to this essential fact and reality that you and I are born destined to hell, but because of Jesus and only because of Jesus, you can get heaven. Some of you in this room may not be church people, and you're thinking, what the crap is this pastor saying? Most people don't understand exactly how offensive, evil, and intrinsically wrong sin is and how much God hates it. You think God winks at sin like you wink at sin. Is my addiction to pornography really that bad? (laughs) You know, the, the silly illustration I give to youth and if you've been in any of my youth groups for, I don't know, I've been here for 12 years, so. Um, I say, like, imagine I took all of you guys to Jamba Juice right over here. And then just a few of you guys, I just, like, put a little bit of bird turd in there. Just a little bit. How many of you guys are going, like, no, nah, I'm not playing this game. Like, I don't know. I, I, like, just the smallest amount of impurity taints the entire thing. The smallest amount of <laughs> bird turd <laughs> makes the whole smoothie unpleasing to you. That's how sin works in our lives. It's like bird turd, right? <laughs> what did you learn at church today? It's like, oh, it sounds like bird turd. Uh, right? The smallest amount of it makes us wholly and completely unclean. It makes us lost and separate from God. Ray Stebbins says this. He says, people are not waiting until they die to be lost. They're already lost. It's the grace of God that reaches down and calls us out of the lostness and gives us an opportunity to come to Christ and be saved. Go with me to verse two. It says this. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, a zealousness, a passion for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, these Jewish people have a passion for God, but it isn't because they actually know God. I want you to hear this. This is actually a pretty intense statement. He's saying that there are people that existed then, and I'm saying that there are people that exist today, and they're probably in this room, that are attempting to worship a God that they don't know, but they think they know him. About eight years ago, um, a group of young adults... uh, um, started attending young adults on Sunday nights, and uh, they started going to this Bible study that some other churches um, were going to as well. And it was, I think, believe it was in someone's house. And uh, they kept trying to get me to come to it. Hey, you come to this Bible study, man. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. And uh, I, I could never make it in my schedule to, to go. And so one night, I saw, as I was sitting at home with my wife, um, we, we, I saw on Facebook that they were broadcasting the live stream of their Bible study. And I was like, for sure, I'm going to check this out. And so I put it up on my screen, and my wife and I were just sitting on the couch watching it. And not one time did anyone actually talk about the Bible. They spent their whole time talking about their feelings. And by the way, if you ever go into a Bible study, um, and uh, someone says, hey, what do you think about that verse? Or like, uh, leave the Bible study. Here's why. First off, whenever I'm in a Bible study, they go like, hey, what do you think? I go, I don't care what you think. Like, what did the author intend when he wrote it? You know, like, like that's what I think about. Like, um, and so the entire time they're going around, I didn't even see a Bible there. The entire time they talk about the Bible, and everyone starts doing this really weird thing. They break up in the groups and they start practicing prophecy. So I'm sitting there and I see all of my friends at this. I see the, I see it on the live camera. There's like six of my buddies there, and I was like, and they start going around in a circle. And they said, "All right, I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to ask God to give you a vision, revelation, and prophecy of what the person next to you had for dinner." I'm thinking like. <laughs> like, like this is cult. Like this is this is not at all like what's found in scripture, right? Like this is not how prophecy works, by the way. Um, and so I see like my buddy. Um, he's like, I believe. And he says his hands on on this person. He's like, I believe you had goldfish. And the the girl that's next to him goes, Oh my gosh, Becky. No, so she. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was babysitting someone yesterday, and I fed them goldfish, and every, there's 100 people in this house. They all start celebrating God, and I'm like, what the freak? Like, like, I'm like, this is, like, what is happening? This is weird. Like, this is not prophecy. That wasn't prophetic. By the way, the Bible gives us language that prophets are never wrong. They're always right, and if they are wrong even one time, like he was in that case, 
they're not a prophet, and they're to be burned, is what the Bible says. So I was like, they haven't read that in the Bible, but anyways. Um, so then at the end, there's a guy that busts out a song, and, uh, and, and they're singing, and everyone starts lifting their hands, and here's what, here's what dawned on me. Most of the people in this house were probably lifting their hands to a God they think they knew, but they didn't. To be filled by God, you need to know God as he's made himself known in the truth of his word. The biblical literacy, it appeared to be in that group, as I obviously continue to watch a few more week after week, was extraordinarily low. It was the blind leading the blind. It's important you hear this. Real worship is more than your sincerity or you being earnest. It has to be based on truth and on knowledge as, he has revealed, as God has revealed himself through his word primarily. Here's what this means for you and me. There are tons of Christians who worship in sincerity, but not truth, and therefore their worship is useless. The Bible says in John 4 that the only type of worship that's acceptable to God is that's done in spirit, but in truth. And so that means that there are Christians all over the place that lift their hands to a God that they don't actually know because they're not in their Bibles. And the truth is, if you aren't in your Bibles, you too will develop sincere thoughts about wrong things. The primary way that God has made himself known to you and me is not through pastors. I get, the, I get a privilege of reading the very text that God has given to us that is the primary way. If you want to know what God's voice sounds like, read your Bibles. If you want to know what it sounds like, if you want to hear an audible voice from God, read your Bible out loud. <laughs> the Bible is such a fascinating book. It's, every time you open it, it's the only book in human history that every time you open it, the author is present with you, helping you interpret it. There are tons of places on earth you can go for information. There are others you can go for inspiration, but there's only one place we can go for transformation. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, for God's word is alive and active. It changes you and I if we submit and surrender to it. You know, I think there are, there are too many Christians that probably believe that God sounds like the voice of their pastor. Like God sounds like me if you, this is your church, Right? I promise you God sounds way better. He probably sounds like, like Morgan Freeman, way better than I do, right? It's important, right? And by the, by the way, there's even verses in like 2 Timothy that talk about one of the reasons that you guys should know your Bibles so that you can hold me accountable, so that I'm not going astray. I don't start talking about goldfish last, whatever, like, like, so you can go like, no, that don't sound right, that don't sound right, you know, like, I'm not going to that church, or like, you know, so you can test me. It's, an, it's important you guys know your Bible, right? So that I, I'm not leading you, I mean, I try not to lead you astray, I'm praying and I hope I don't lead you astray, right? Um... But God's word trains you and I, right? It equips us. And here's what this means. Like I talked about, there's tons of Christians that may be worshiping a God that they do not know. Why? Because it says worship in spirit and truth, not experience. Millennials and Gen Z are, are, are so involved in ushering in these worship experiences, which is what was happening in that house, which I deem as a cult. All they're trying to do is just make, make me feel something. Overwhelm me in this moment through lights, fog, and a good singer, Right? Worship in spirit and in truth. You must worship God. Know God as he has made himself known through the truth of his word, or you will worship a God of your own doing. God made us in his image, and we have been doing the favor and reversing the favor ever since, making him, making him in our image and worshiping basically just an exalted us. God thinks like me, votes like me, wants me to do whatever it may be. Here's what this means. Uh, there is a difference between a profession of faith and the filling of its possession. There's a difference for someone who claims to follow Jesus and someone who really does because you can see the possession of faith. They're holding on to it in their heart, within their life, and it's changing the way in which they live. Verse 3 says this, For being ignorant of righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. 
Two charges are brought against the Jews who do not believe in Jesus. Number one, their ignorance of how sin has actually affected them so they think they can work to be right with God. Last week, um, it was Mother's Day. Uh, A bunch of you guys weren't here, so let me recap in 30 seconds maybe or 10 seconds what we kind of talked about. I talked about this idea in Romans 9. It talks about a thing called predestination. And I gave three specific ways in which we can look at something called predestination. And that's the way it answers a question. Do we choose God? Does God choose us? Does he send people to hell? Do people send themselves to hell? Do, do people send themselves to heaven? Answers all these questions. Calvinism, Arminianism, Molinism was the three views that we went through. For those of you guys that care. There is something in Calvinism that I like. Um, and I'm not a Calvinist. It, it's called total depravity. It's that sin has so wrecked you and I. Right? That one uh, author said, it's like you flying in a plane with malfunctioning instrument in the fog at night. You have no idea if you're going north, south, east, or west. You have no idea if you're going up or down. You have no idea your airspeed. You have no idea where geographically you are. That is how sin has affected you and I. And I believe that to be true, right? And so the Jews, they were ignorant of how sin had affected them. They actually thought that God actually cared about the curls in their hair. Like, because they wore a certain hat, God was, like, stoked. Like, those are my dudes. Like, like because they got sick beards. Like, that, that was it. Like, they literally thought, like, because we're Jewish, because we have these cool capes or whatever they wore, like, God was amped on them, right? <laughs> and they were ignorant that, no, 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 there's, there's something entirely different that you need to be right with God. It's not your moral works. It was the work that was done on the cross. It's number two, they did not submit to Jesus to become right with God. That's where it talks about they did not submit to God's righteousness. Let me just talk about the first one for the sake of time. Ignorance and thinking that they could do enough to become right with God. When Scripture talks about our natural state, our unregenerate state is the theological term, it talks about this idea of lostness, but it uses words like deaf, and it uses words like blind. It even uses words like dead. I guess when you think about it, if you're dead, you're also blind and deaf, so it makes sense, right? But uh, I'll give you an example. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Do you understand what the word dead means? I'll give you an example to prove what dead means. Imagine um, to graduate college. One of your professors said, all right, look, uh, this next week for your final is I want you guys to go to the cemetery. Um, I want you to find one tombstone, and I want you to bring that dude back to life. Or girl, we're not sexist. Uh, someone, someone's coming back to life, right? What would you do? More importantly, like, who would you bring? Like, would you bring, like, a philosopher? who's got, like, life, like, you know, answers to life's largest questions? Would you bring your favorite pastor to, like, preach the best sermon? Would you bring Carly to, like, sing your very first worship, your very favorite worship song? Like, what would you do? Of course not, right? You would get on your hands and knees and ask God to do only something he could do, make dead things live, bring life to the decay. By the way, I think that would be highly improbable for God to do that for you, by the way, like, like 1,000%. But anyways, the idea is you and everyone you know, the Bible gives us language to say that you are spiritually dead without Jesus, and there isn't anything a dead person can do to make them come alive again and then th- thus become in a right standing with God, other than putting their faith in the one who was right with God and can transfer his righteousness to your account. That person was Jesus. And so the Jews, Paul is writing to, don't think they need Jesus because they're operating under the lie that they can do enough good to get to God. They don't think sin has so destroyed and damaged them. They still think that they can actually do enough God, uh, good to impress God. Right? I've also given this illustration before. Imagine that the best person on the planet did a bunch of great things and whatever it was. And so let's say that everyone starts off in the Mariana Trench in the ocean. And the more good you do, the higher you climb, the higher you climb. 
And so finally, this, this individual gets to Mount Everest, and he's climbing over all the dead bodies, finally getting up, gets to the top of Mount Everest, overlooks everything, he's, and, and, and he dies, and he's feeling great about himself. I have climbed. I'm the best person to ever live. When he dies, he realizes, and God gives him the perspective, that the distance that he needed to cross was not the seafloor to the clouds. It was the seafloor to Pluto. I think he's going to feel about himself. Did he climb any further? In the large scheme, No. His goodness did not place him in the standing that he thought he was in. And that's the same with people that think, I'm good enough to get to heaven. You're not. Remember what I said earlier. It's not about your goodness. It's about do you have a relationship with God? The only way that you can be accepted by God is not through your good works, it's through the person of Jesus Christ. I heard a story of uh, a Jewish boy who converted to Christianity, and his rabbi wrote him this letter because he was troubled by the boy's faith in Christianity. It says this, The basic question about religion is how to elevate man, bring him into a closer relationship with God. This is the rabbi's view. This is how, if you do enough good, you'll climb climb Mount Everest. We believe that God revealed to us in the Torah, that's the Old Testament, the five books of, it's it's the Old Testament, how he wants us to live so that we can be in harmony with his divine purpose. Our role and religious purpose is to obey God's law, to love him and obey him. We exercise our free will to proper intention and through, and though having done the good deeds are elevated so that it becomes progressively easier and more natural to continue to do good and to resist evil. This is the, Jewish's, the, 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 the Jewish rabbi's view of how to be right before God. Simply keep doing good until it becomes easier and easier, and finally one day, we don't know when, you will finally be right with God. Paul goes, pump the brakes. That's a problem. Because anyone who seeks to come to God on this basis is doomed to fail because you will fail. You're not perfect. This side of heaven, you'll never be perfect. And so Paul goes on to show us why they can't, uh, continue, like why, why this won't get them to God, and then reveals that the issue is always Jesus. Go with me to verse 4. He says this. And we're going we're gonna to wrap up here, and I'll get you in your groups in a second. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Two things quickly. Number one, the law ends for the believer in the sense that our obedience to the law is no longer the basis of our relationship with God. This is important. Your goodness doesn't actually get you closer to God. Your your evilness doesn't get you further away from God. Judicially speaking, I'm going to explain that in a second. I'll explain it now. Okay, so um, it's a good question. What happens to a believer when they sin? You watch, you know, you click onto some website, you know, you shouldn't be doing, you drink, you're smoking, you're doing something, your boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, you're harboring uh, uh, anger, whatever it is, right? What happens? What happens when a Christian sins? Now, there are some streams of theology that I think are erroneous, wrong, um, that say like, well, when, when you sin, and if you don't confess that sin, bummer, dude, <laughs> bummer, right? What happens when a Christian sins? Well, the Bible uses a lot of legal language to talk about this, uh, judicial language. It's that you are still declared justified, which is a legal term, to be, it's a, decla- a declaration of righteousness. However, you're now relationally distant. If I sin against my wife, at the end of that day, am I still married? There's yes. Now, there are, there's court proceedings and things that could go, but we'd have to invite the judicial law. When a Christian sins, they're still declared righteous. We're now relationally distant. If I sin against my wife, she, I don't know, I lie to her, um, I say that I like her dress and I don't. Whatever, whatever the lies, right? At the end of that day, I'm still married. There's a ring on my finger and we are still legally declared married. But now I'm relationally distant from her. And that's where repentance comes in. Repentance is turning around, going, acknowledging my wrong and seeking and asking for forgiveness. So the law ends for the believer in the sense that it's no longer our obedience to the law that 
God uses in our relationship. It's, is the person have a, given their life over to Jesus Christ? Number two, the law has not come to an end in the sense that it no longer reflects God's standard or no longer showing us our need for a savior. I've said this before. The law's purpose? To show you and I that we are more than mistakers who need a second, third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth chance. You're a sinner who desperately needs a savior. And so the law's purpose was to make us aware of the fact that something's wrong with us. If you don't, right, if you don't have a standard to live up to, you have no idea that anything is wrong with you. So you think everything you're doing is natural and therefore right. In fact, you hear this argument often in, in culture today. Um, you hear things like, well, you know, anything that's natural is right. And that's because more and more today, I think we're unanchoring ourselves from the law, from God's law. You hear people say things like, well, I was born this way. Therefore, it's right. My answer to this, and I remember sitting with um, a group of individuals that le- uh, believed a different side of, of marriage than I do, um, and they said, well, they can be born that way. And I said, then why do you think the Bible talks about we need to be reborn? Okay, you may be born that way. And I'm not, I'm not by the way, there is actually no, uh, I just read an article by a guy named Francis Collins who mapped the entire human genome, and there is no genetic a marker and disposition that makes somebody gay, by the way. But I'll give them the argument. Okay, let's say you were born that way. Then why does every time Jesus meet with someone who was Jewish, someone who was a Gentile, non-Jewish person, the first thing he says is that they must be spiritually reborn. They must be made new. Why is that? In fact, actually, we'll go, to, go with me. Grab your Bible. Go with me to John chapter 3. We'll read the story. Uh, to help you out, um, Romans It goes Romans, go back, Acts, and then you're in John. Uh, I believe it's verses 1 through 7. Chapter 4, did I say that? John 4? John 4, 1 through 7. Oh, nope, John 3. John 3, 1 through 7. All right, here we go. Let me know when you're there. It's not even my notes. We're doing it. All right. Uh, I'll get you guys your groups. How about you speaking for 40 minutes? My gosh. All right, here we go. Is everyone there? John 3, verses 1 through 4. I'm in the ESV. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees, Pharisees, religious leaders, named Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Uh, is anyone wearing Nikes in here? This, uh, the word Nike, or the, the concept Nike, actually comes from Nicodemus's name. It was his nickname, Nike. It means the conquering one, right? He was the ancient Ben Shapiro. This is the dude they sent in to college campuses to squash all arguments, right? This is who he was in the ancient world. He was the guy that they sent in. He was the hammer of the Jewish people, right? Um, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night. I've heard a lot of pastors teach this incorrectly. Um, they think that like he's like a coward, and so he comes by night. Everyone in Jesus's, in the world mostly at the time, all had to work during the day. So when would Jesus get his largest audience? At night, there's thousands of people Jesus is speaking to at this time. So it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Ben Shapiro, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, uh, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So like, think of like a 14-year-old like talking back to their mom, like, oh, I'm sure you can do signs. Uh, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb, which is graphic, and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do, do not marvel, I said, you must be born again. Here's what he's saying. Everything about you is so fundamentally offensive to me, flawed and broken, I can do nothing with you as you are. 
You need to be made holy and 100% new. Yikes. No wonder why the Jews didn't like them. They thought they were on the fast track. They thought God was stoked on them. In comes Jesus, God in a bod, and goes, nah, bro, you're offensive. <laughs> like, even your best things suck. I know you think you're good people. You're not. And that's the same message he has to you. I know you think you're a good person. I know you think you're just a mistaker. You're not. You're fundamentally flawed. You're fundamentally broken. And what this means is that our minds, our hearts, and our emotions, and our wills don't interpret, and they don't feel things correctly. Here's what this means in the culture we live in today, that the things that, you, that may feel right to you aren't necessarily right. The things that may sound right to you aren't necessarily right. And finally, what that means is that you and I could have desires that are not right. And this is why I think Scripture teaches us that every single person, without fault, regardless of orientation, or, we all are in the same category of people that need to be spiritually reborn or spiritually regenerated to be right with God. And that's what Romans chapter 10 begins to teach us. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13, uh, next week, by the way, we're going through verses 5 through uh, 13. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, it says, for all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what this means is that for all who call on the name of the Lord have the capacity, have the desire to be spiritually reborn will be saved. That's the promise of scripture. And so today, that's what you guys are gonna be talking about in your guys' discussion groups. Put your arm around somebody. I'll pray for you guys. And then I'll give you guys, let's say, 20 or so minutes to go through those questions. Lord God, we love you and we thank you. And we thank you, Father, that you're a God that saves and you're the only one that can save. So Father, I just ask as we continue to go through these four verses today that you your spirit would be present and Lord, it would teach us to apply, God, these words to our lives. Father, we love you, we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.